Hello, and welcome to another episode of Why We Do the Work. I'm Arjuri, and I would like to remind folks what we were talking about last week. Again, this is a podcast about childhood cancer, and today we're in Portland, Oregon, but what we're talking about is West Eugene, down in Eugene, Oregon. To remind you, there is a creosote plant down there that is no longer in operation called J.H. Baxter that has wreaked havoc on the Bethel community for decades. So now they are no longer in operation, but there's a whole lot of cleanup to be done. There's a whole lot of laws and policies that need to be made. And I'm joined here today with Taryn uh, Yazani. Did I say your last name right? Yazdani, you are very close. Yazdani. I'm here with Taryn Yazdani and Rebka DeWitt. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Rebka DeWitt. So I'm here with these two ladies today, and we're going to sidestep a little bit into the law aspect of things on why we do the work. I like to talk a lot, and I have a lot of questions for both of you because um, I'm just only starting to learn a lot about these policies and laws and how long they take and how frustrating it can be, not only for the lawyers and people and legislation, but for the community, it can cause a lot of anxiety, not knowing exactly what those laws are. And hopefully we can explain that and get them to feel a little bit more comfortable in ways they can do something about it. So again, Taryn is the staff attorney and climate manager for Beyond Toxics. We work together and Rebka is um, associate attorney at Craig Law Firm, which is also here in Portland, Oregon. So all three of us today are coming to you from Portland, Oregon, but we're talking about Eugene. Taryn, I'm excited to talk to you because I wrote a little something here in my notes. I'm going to go ahead and jump right into that because I... I can't hear an accent from you and we'll get, we'll get to exactly where you're from. Um, once you get to introducing yourself, I cannot hear an accent. The <laughs> only reason I hear an accent and know that there's one is because you say, because that's so funny. <laughs> and I, Because you say, because, and I didn't realize I say, because, and I'm from Texas. So yeah. I, you know, my husband said to me one day, he's like, do you know you say, because, and so now I always hear myself saying it and I hear you saying it. So I'm like, she's definitely from the South. She says, because. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and why it is that you say because? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Audrey. That is hilarious. And I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of glad that there is an accent somewhere to be found. Cause like, I get the same thing all the time. I am from Jackson, Mississippi, born and raised, literally grew up there my entire life. But yeah, no accent, no anything. Um, I think it's really cute. And I don't have an, a Texas accent. I don't think I ever did. I must have when I moved here, I must have said something a lot. But I don't now it's totally gone except for because. And I don't mean to leave you out there, Rebka. And I have a little thing for you as well. I want to add an H to the end of your name. Mm. So much so that when I, we were getting these emails together, you know, we were having a chain of emails. I accidentally sent it to, I accidentally CC'd a law professor at University of Oregon, who's Rebecca with mm -hmm. an H at the end. So I want you to tell me a little bit about your name because it's unique. I'm glad that I'm saying it right. And honestly, this is the first time we've really had a conversation. So tell me yeah. a little bit about yourself. 
Yeah. I also don't know why I don't have an H, but I have asked my mom before, but um, my name originates from Ethiopia. My family immigrated to America. I'm the first uh, generation born in the States. So Rebka is actually like the easier American pronunciation of my name, which traditionally it's pronounced Rebka, but I think Rebka. Rebka. Yeah. So I... It's been workshopped throughout my years of school, <laughs> so <laughs> Rebka has been the easiest one without going full Rebecca. So, um, but I know there's, I think it's just different spellings. I, you know, have even wondered why I have the second E if it's not even being used. But <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I it comes from an Ethiopian background, but I'm from uh, San Jose, California. When my family immigrated, they went straight to the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So born and raised there, and. Absolutely loved it. But, you know, Oregon is uh, just an hour and a half flight from home. So, yep. And it's a beautiful place. Yeah. You came from a beautiful place to a beautiful place. I think that's awesome that your family is, you said Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. I think that's wonderful. I wouldn't have guessed that um, because just looking at you and, and I'm just going to say this, my kids are biracial. And so mm. looking at you, that's what I see. I see like my kids. So it's yeah. it's nice to really put a name to, to what you are. But I don't mean to say yeah. it like that. No, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I have noticed with like a lot of friends and family or like, not family, obviously my family's Ethiopian, but with a lot of friends uh, who have not seen a lot of Ethiopians, I think like once they recognize my own facial features, then it's like, it's easy to spot an Ethiopian yeah. because it's like the facial features are all the same, but up until you realize someone's Ethiopian, I feel like it is pretty racially ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah, it totally is. And now I'm going to be looking for Ethiopians and pe- other people to say, because Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> other people that say, because I didn't even notice the, because me neither. I love it though. Yeah, because. <laughs> so, and I say it, my kids say it because I say it. So as opposed to what? Because. We say, we say, because. Because. Yeah, that's a, uh, like, but, because. Oh. And most everybody says because, but we say because. Mm. It's kind (laughs) of like how, the only, the newest accent that I noticed in Oregon is the, the E instead of the A and sometimes when they say like beg instead of bag. Oh, like the bag? Yes. (laughs) I feel like that's the Midwestern influence coming in. Yeah. Bag, rag, hello happens a lot. Mm-hmm. My kids say some of these things, to be honest, they because they were born and raised here. My youngest mm-hmm. one, Zion, the reason why I do the work, says pillow and bagel and all those things like that. Yeah. that I, I think it's cute. The other kids didn't get it, but she has it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's cool. Thank you both for introducing yourselves to me a little bit. I'm going to jump right into a few things here, just a little bit more about both of you, and then we're going to get into a little bit more about laws and and what you're working on and if you're working on things together and I'm interested in how you met I think it was from Lewis and Clark because Mm -hmm. I googled both of you um while I was doing some research just so I could know what was going on (laughs) Taryn I'm going to tell you right now you're easier to google than your friend here I barely could find anything about you you're not very googleable oh I don't know if that's a good thing (laughs) well it was good for me it was good for me but yeah um keep elusive I guess I, I think I can I, I unfortunately I think if you google my name you're going to see all kinds of stuff from hair to J.H. Baxter you're going to see mm-hmm. me on there a lot so 
I don't know. I guess it makes me feel weird. I'm gonna Not that weird. Oh. Yeah, let Google her. Yeah. Let me know what I need to take care of. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't anything bad. It was just, you know, your work and how you started to work and where you went to school and all those things, which I kind of already knew a little bit because we've talked, but um, I needed to, you know, have something to look at when I'm talking mm-hmm. to you. So from Jackson, Mississippi, and you shared with me, and this is basically verbatim kind of something that you shared with me was that you noticed when you were very young that the natural disasters and things like that were happening because of planetary change, climate change. And I thought that that was interesting that you were able to notice that at such a young age. I also thought that it was interesting that you were so young when Hurricane Katrina happened. And I'm wondering, and I know that it's fifth grade because I Googled you. I know it was fifth grade when Hurricane Katrina hit. So, you know, that that was a devastation to the world that just ripped a hole in New Orleans. And I am just curious if that had anything to do, if that instance had an impact on one of the reasons why you wanted to go into environmental justice. Oh, yeah. I mean, that has kind of everything to do with my path towards environmentalism, really. I mean, yeah, I was in fifth grade when Hurricane Katrina happened. And I guess the reason I was so in tune that it was because of what we, you know, global warming is kind of the term at the time. I know we've advanced past that. But I mean, I come from a family that just like really talks straight with kids for like lack of a lack of a better thing. Like my parents are both psychologists. And I think that has a lot to do with who I am as a person, mm-hmm. but they talked to me like I was a tiny adult since I was a kid. And, you know, we watched a lot of CNN. I mean, there was just like a lot <laughs> coming. There was a lot coming in that helped me really piece together that disasters like Hurricane Katrina and all of these terrible hurricanes that the Gulf South was really facing was due to warming waters and a warming planet. And I mean, you know, I was in fifth grade when Hurricane Katrina happened, and it really rocked the state of Louisiana and New Orleans itself because of all the intense flooding. But it had a huge impact on the Gulf Coast and the Mississippi Coast specifically. Um, Our state often gets left behind in a lot for various reasons. But uh, the devastation on the Mississippi coast was something that really wasn't heavily in the media's eye, I guess, for lack of a better word. And, you know, I saw that when, you know, when Katrina got to Jackson, it was about a category two or three Ooh. as well. So, you know, like as soon as it hit land and it got that far inland, you know, we lost power for a week and it was a really intense experience from a young age as someone who was getting a slightly died down storm and then of course like since we're more far inland we had an influx of kids come to our school so it was just like a really really mm-hmm. intense experience to have so young and after hurricane katrina i think i even wrote a letter to president bush like <laughs> asking him to do more work on climate oh. not climate change i guess global warming not really realizing that he maybe did not care um but oh, but you did it you did it but I did it I was I was a little spitfire from a really young age um and I have my parents to thank for that but yeah I, I think that just planted a seed really early and you know I went to college in New Orleans mm-hmm. I grew up going there on vacation from a young age I really got to see the city kind of before and after Katrina mm. and you know saw the footprint that it had and was down there for 
the 10 year anniversary of the storm while I was in college. And yeah, it really, it's really just kind of shaped my understanding of what environmentalism is and the communities that got left behind in yeah. all of this. So yeah, I can I can definitely go into it in more detail, but I just think it's really interesting that that was a really formative moment that just kind of led me to where I am today and it's something I'm just really passionate about with climate justice. So, yeah. I love that. And you you actually taught me something because I didn't realize I mean, I knew Hurricane Katrina was was wild, but I didn't know that it had far stretched. I didn't know that you were impacted by it at all in Mississippi. So that's something that I just learned today. I had just had a baby when it happened too, so I mm-hmm. might have heard it, but mm-hmm. I could have had like just I don't I didn't realize that. So yeah. I think wow. Yeah. That's crazy. No. Yeah, it's it's really insane and I mean, again, what happened in New Orleans is just a whole other bag of worms just because, you know, all of the flooding that happened was because of the levees breaking and just systemic failure on the part of of the people in charge and you know anyway but yeah Mississippi often gets left behind in a lot and we can we can chat about that more but the whole coast was just really devastated it was yeah wow thank you for sharing that with me that's awesome that that had such an impact on you so you know something kind of like what's going on with me I was able to turn something that was so negative that had impacted my life into something that's positive. You're doing a lot of good now for the world. And I think that that's awesome. I think I'm always a silver lining person. So I always like to see the good and things that are bad. So Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that's to a fault and sometimes that isn't a good thing, but I'm positive. So I love that. that. (laughs) Thanks. And Rebka, like I said, you're not that easy to Google. So what I did find about you was that you had gone to a sleepaway camp, sixth grade in the Redwoods, mm-hmm. and you came back on fire and ready to go save the world. Tell me a little bit about that. How did it, how did that impact you? I also learned that there was an internship and I know that that had some impact yeah. as well. And we're going to go into that if you, if you don't mind sharing um, yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I, when I was in elementary school, back when I think we had a little bit more funding for our public schools in California, all the sixth graders would go to the sleepaway camp called Walden West. I think it's still running. We had just looked it up the other day. And so you go for a week and you are in these cabins and every day is just a little curriculum about insert whatever environmental process, whether we're learning about soil or water or just like very, very simplified environmental studies is what we were doing with the kind of tangible childhood education aspect of having us touch what we're talking about. So it was like 30 minutes from home. But to me, I felt like I just (laughs) went to like the other side of the country. We were just ready. And, you know, I'd always loved animals and I'd always loved nature. You know, there's like photos that I have from when my parents first took me back to Ethiopia when I was like three and I was just like sitting with the little like sheep that I guess would become dinner in a couple days but I don't (laughs) recognize that but you know I'd be sitting with the sheep I had pictures of cats and dogs and horses I you know I always loved animals and nature and I think you know my I was really lucky that my parents facilitated that you know my mom was never like oh like put that down so That was kind of building up to sixth grade. And then we go to the sleepaway camp and I am just absolutely blown away by the redwoods. I'm absolutely blown away by just 
you know, the smell. I remember we were there for Halloween. So it was like October. It was kind of crisp. It was like cozy. That also probably planted the seed for me to move up to Oregon, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) But I just remember like learning about, I mean, I think, you know, we just kind of had Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. Like, you know, I think Mm -hmm. global warming was starting to become a thing. We did not experience anything like, you know, what Taryn experienced of a hurricane. You know, we had maybe earthquakes here and there and sometimes it was hot but there was nothing that really disrupted our day-to-day but so I think that sleepaway camp is what clicked and I came home because back then also they were like environmentalism starts and finishes at reduce reuse recycle you know it was very simple back in what 2005 so Mm -hmm. I came home and I was like mom we have to recycle and she was like okay so but I mean what's amazing is you know I really also credit my mom to like really nurturing a lot of that instead of being like that's a lot I was raised by a single mom and I, it was easy. It could have just been easy for her to be like, okay, uh, sure, honey. And then like put the water bottle back in the trash when I'm not looking or something, you know, (laughs) but I, you know, she really, really facilitated that. So I've basically been insufferable about the environment since sixth grade. So (laughs) yeah, I love that. I think that that's Mm -hmm. beautiful. I'm older than you both. 16 year old archery. I'm always thinking about her because she is so proud of what's happening right now because she thought she was going to save the world. She thought she was going to you know, make the planet better. And here she is being able to do that. And I'm so proud of her. And I know that she's proud of me too. So thank you for sharing how your mom facilitated that because I, I don't think I really had that sort of thing. You know, I growing up in Texas, there was no, there was no recycling there. There still isn't. When I was down in Texas visiting, I felt so guilty. I was like, should I just take all this trash home with me? Because nobody's Mm -hmm. recycling. Nobody's, there's no like recycle area. I mean, it's, it's weird. So I think Mm -hmm. it's awesome that you have had your mom um, help cultivate that. I think that's beautiful. So tell me a little bit about that, the internship. Yeah. And it was with the Latinx community. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So post sixth grade throughout high school, I, I thought I wanted to be a vet. I took AP biology. I was like, absolutely not. And (laughs) I was like, I want to interpret the science rather than make the science. So that's when I first got introduced to the concept of environmental science and environmental studies. So my AP environmental science teacher, you know, he's someone that I really credit for kind of helping me. You know, I think that was another pivotal moment, like similar to the sixth grade, I could have really just been turned away from like the sciences as a whole and he was like hey like you know I'm teaching environmental AP environmental science just apply to college with that degree I think you'll like it like apply to that major take AP environmental science in the senior year and let's just see what happens so took that class in high school did well and then ended up going to UC Santa Cruz uh, with my major is environmental studies so through that major we had an environmental racism and injustice course at that point it was also just environmental racism we didn't quite have like environmental justice as a subject area the way we do now Mm -hmm. so we were talking about all these different injustices throughout the U.S. and some international instances. And part of that class was also placing us in different environmental justice organizations throughout the Central Coast. So like from Santa Cruz down to Monterey. For folks who might not know, you know, that little dip in California from Santa Cruz to Monterey is where a ton of our food 
like fruits and vegetables comes from it's often called like the cornucopia of the united states it's like if you got a straw if you ate a strawberry it probably came from there mm-hmm. if you're eating kale it probably came from there wow. um there's a ton of of fruit and vegetables that are grown there and so i got placed at this organization called safe ag safe schools and um that was based in salinas which is about 20 minutes south of santa cruz and that organization at the time was advocating for a no pesticide buffer spray or no a no spray pesticide buffer around elementary schools because at the time I started at that internship in 2016 at that point you were able to spray pesticides up to the front door of an elementary school and that and Salinas is home to a lot of farm workers a lot of you know migrant farm workers a lot of people who are not in that place of privilege to kind of push back against you know these pesticide regulations to push back against like OSHA regulations or like or are not even given the policy tools to even have that you know advocacy of like I should be able to read what is on my pesticide label Mm -hmm. and what these effects are so in Salinas you know that kind of area of the central coast has one of the highest rates of childhood cancer in the United States it's absurd once I saw the scientific backing. So this organization was trying to push legislation towards the California government being like, hey, you need to like have a buffer around elementary schools. And it's kind of ridiculous that we even have to advocate for exactly. Mm-hmm. And so my job at the time was gathering testimony. So I talked to bus drivers, I talked to I remember one person that I talked to was a school nurse who mm-hmm. retired and was like, I did not have asthma until I moved to Salinas. Mm-hmm. Or one of the bus drivers would say like there's times where we're just driving and we're just going through a cloud of pesticide oh like a pesticide cloud and their kids if kids aren't getting sick their parents are dying it was just it's just absolutely absurd and i was horrified that i only lived you know san jose is about 30 minutes from santa cruz so i was within an hour of all of these things that were happening mm-hmm. and i just remember being so shocked and shocked that I was shocked and disappointed that I didn't know more. And, you know, at the time I was like 19 or 20. So like I had to give myself a little bit of grace, but I then was at least like, okay, well now I know. So what can I do? And we would have, I think it was like biweekly roundtables with everyone at Safe Ag Safe Schools. And we'd kind of brainstorm about what our next steps should be and who's going to Sacramento, who's staying here, who's doing this testimony, who's doing that. And there was at one point where there was kind of a week where it was feeling a little low and you know one at one point I was like what would help like what would be better like what 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 would help this go smoother or at least have some power behind it and I remember someone at the round table was like it'd be great if we had a attorney there was zero there was just I think it was just some folks who had some policy experience and it was a bunch of UC Santa Cruz kids and then that was it and incredible community-based organizers and I was like, okay, great. I now know what I want to do with my environmental studies degree. And we had an environmental law class at Santa Cruz. And I was like, I'll take that next semester and see how it goes. And um, yeah, so that was kind of the formative, like kind of tangible, like, okay, environmental justice is what I want to work in. And and I'm taking that environmental law class. And I was like, okay, this is doable. And I like it more than, you know, the nitty gritty bio aspects of right environmental studies yeah if it if yeah Mm -hmm. I was like okay like I've always wanted to do the office work of environmental science and it's 
environmental law. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's, thank you for sharing all that because it it doesn't say all that in the article. So I really wanted to ask exactly what, what that internship was and how that impacted your decision to, to be an environmental justice lawyer. So both of you studied environmental science, right? Did you both study environmental science? And what's the difference between environmental science and environmental studies? Am I saying these things right? Yeah. Did you do science? I started and then I switched. I love how parallel our stories are. (laughs) Like that's, I, you know, I went to college. It was windy. I started thinking I was going into medical school because I am from a Persian family and you are a doctor. Like that is just like what I was told my entire life. Doctor, lawyer, engineer. Doctor, lawyer, engineer. And I was like, doctor's the top of my list right now. But, you know, a lot like you, I, I mean, it was, it was a cellular biology class where I was just pulling my hair out and I was like, I can't stand this. And the only thing that I loved was kind of the evolutionary science course that I took And so I switched to environmental sciences. And then the more I got into my courses, because I also double majored in anthropology, and there's a ton Mm -hmm. of overlap at my school with environmental studies and anthropology, because at that time, the environmental studies major was pretty new. So you could kind of pick and choose what you wanted it to be. And so I was just slowly building up an environmental studies double major on the side. And I was like, much like much like you Repka I was like oh my skill set is in more of like the human impacts of this like I don't want to I don't want to dedicate my life to like a one single type of bird that can only be found in like this certain area of the world because <laughs> right. that's what people yeah. like that's what people I was going to school with were doing and were super passionate about and I was like I this is not me so yeah I think the main difference is just kind of the focus environmental sciences is really science focused. It has great benefits, but what I love about environmental studies is it has that humanities aspect. Mm -hmm. It has the focus on, okay, how are the things that are happening in our natural world impacting people? And that's Mm -hmm. really, that was what I cared about. It kind of reminds me of like a relay race, like environmental science is like passing the baton for the environmental studies folks to interpret the science and use it to go advance something. That's That's great. That's the kind of way that I, because I was like, okay, well, I don't want to be like making and figuring out like how much CO2 needs Mm -hmm. to happen before this system (laughs) topples. I don't want to do that, but like, tell me what happens and then let me go do some policy with it. Let me interpret that. So it's a baton, it's a baton pass. So we talked a lot about environmental justice, environmental racism in the beginning of this. We're going to get into deeper with that. But mm-hmm. first, I want to know a little bit about, so you both graduated from Lewis and Clark. Mm-hmm. Rebka, you started to work at Craig. And when did that happen? And tell me a little bit about the relationship that Craig has with Beyond Toxics. Because Lisa's always saying, Repka, Repka, Repka. And I'm like, what's Repka doing so much? What, what, what about Repka? So tell me a little bit about Craig and what yeah. your relationship is with Beyond Toxics. 
Yeah, so um, Crag Law Center, you know, is a Portland-based um, environmental law firm, and um, you know, the motto is protecting and sustaining the Pacific Northwest natural legacy. We give free and low-cost legal services for folks wanting to protect various aspects of the Pacific Northwest. So that's communities, wild, you know, climate issues. It could, it just, it's a, it's a wide-reaching nonprofit environmental firm. So I started in like my attorney capacity in August of 2021. And, but I was always kind of in the Craig space since I started at law school. Craig was my first ever legal internship when I started at Lewis and Clark, my first summer back in 2018, going into my second year. And I, I really credit Craig to being also that pivotal. I think there's just many like pivotal moments, like many forks in the road that ended up just going correctly. And, mm-hmm. you know, the first year of law school, you know, as Taryn, I'm sure we'll also touch on, it's just brutal. And I was like, what did I do? What am I doing here? <laughs> I am 22 years old. I feel like I'm 10 because all my peers are almost 30 yes, with okay. life experience. I'm fresh out of Santa Cruz. And also on top of all that, I'm the only black woman in my entire graduating class. So I was just like, there was just so many things that I was like, what have I done? Yeah. And, you know, I ended up interning at Craig after, I don't even know if they do this anymore, but they, Lewis and Clark used to host a public interest career fair where it used to be like 15 minute speed dating interviews to get your summer internships for all the nonprofits. <laughs> and I had my 15 minute speed date interview with um, our now executive director, Courtney Johnson, and one of our, our managing attorney, Maura Fahey. And I did my little 15 minute speed date. I got the job and I interned there. And that was the real like oh my god this is what environmental law looks like because also in your first year of law school you're not even taking like environmental law classes you're taking all the prerequisites to then take whatever you want to take later so I was like I contracts I don't this isn't for me or (laughs) you know I don't want to do this I was like what have I what have I done yeah Mm -hmm. so then I get to actually see what like is at the other end of the law degree and that really kept me solidified in you know, being steadfast in my decision to go straight to law school from college. And so that was just like, you know, a 10 week internship, but I stuck around. I was volunteering at events. Courtney was an amazing mentor throughout law school. So fast forward to when I graduated, it was a year after I graduated because I was working in international environmental law before and Craig had opened up their fellowship application. So I applied for that two-year fellowship and, you know, my cover letter was extremely environmental justice heavy and now looking like now that I am here and I was told what happened before my application came, you know, Craig was in the process of wanting to expand its program area to have an attorney specifically dedicated to environmental justice. You know, Craig was noticing this kind of shift in environmental priorities, noticing this need, talking to their own client orgs, being like, if we had an environmental justice focused attorney helping with policy and litigation if need be, would you be interested? And, you know, Beyond Toxics was one of the first folks I think Craig had reached out to and Beyond Toxics was like, yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, so then that was kind of the catalyst to me getting this as like a staff, as a associate attorney, like as a permanent staff member. So Courtney was like, hey, uh, so maybe no on the fellowship, but would you be interested in being like our, our EJ attorney? And I was like, uh, absolutely. Ooh. So and this is also something that, you know, and I, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, is that it required so much trust and collaboration to make this role, st- you know, kind of function, you know, similar to Taryn in the creating your environmental studies major. Like there is like just a small 
small handful of people just throughout the country of being attorneys that are specifically de dedicated to EJ. So no one really knows what it looks like yet. Right. So every day is new. Every day is, you know, we're just trying to figure it out. So I believe Craig has been working with Beyond Toxics for years. One of our previous executive directors, uh, Chris Winters, I believe, used to work pretty close with Beyond Toxics. Mm -hmm. also, I mean, Taryn cumulatively has worked longer at Craig than I think I have. I think <laughs> cumulatively I'm like at a year and a half, but you have like cumulatively like almost three years. So <laughs> Xavier, to your fellowship in your... And my summer. And my, well, my summer slash my externship yeah so you might yeah. know more than I do but I know that Craig and Beyond Toxics have been pretty intertwined for a while mm -hmm. so it's just been really awesome to just start to get into that space and I'm so excited that Taryn is y'all's attorney now I know I was about to jump over here to you Taryn <laughs> so when we first met you started working at Beyond Toxics and we first met we had our little chit chat over here at uh, the Starbucks mm -hmm. and um, you were telling me that it was going to be you weren't sure if you wanted to take the job at BT not because you didn't want to take the job but because you live in Portland so you know that that's it's a luxury to be able to work from home you know I, I feel really blessed and very lucky that I get to do this mm -hmm. so when we met Lisa had spoken to you about well you know there's Arjuri lives in Portland and she works from home and takes a lot of trust to be able to do that and um, I know that that was a, uh, like a push for you to say, yes, I want to take this job. So do you feel happy? Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> no, I am, I'm ecstatic. I mean, I love the fact that everything just worked out so perfectly. I mean, doing the work that I'm doing now at Beyond Toxics is exactly what I wanted to be doing with my life. You know, I went to law school to make a career in environmental justice and especially climate justice. Those are, you know, very interchangeable and intertwined, but this was just kind of a best case scenario for me, especially being an in-house staff attorney, because I think that is kind of the best of both worlds in terms of what my legal skill set is. I loved my time at Craig and it taught me so much, but it really taught me that like, hardcore litigation firm is not exactly my cup of tea. And I think that's something that's really amazing about a staff attorney position in-house at an organization like Beyond Toxics, where I really get to wear the hat of being an advocate for one specific organization. And I love that I can do the legal work, I can do the legal research, but I can also help on policy campaigns. I can help on kind of the nonprofit side of things and just really dive headfirst into an organization that I care about and be a client in that capacity and get to work with great people like Rebka at Craig that I can, you know, pass off some of the heavier litigation things to like when, <laughs> when the time comes, like, I think it was just kind of a dream scenario. And I was honestly shocked that I was able to stay in Portland and keep this job just because I really didn't think that was a possibility. So I'm just, I'm really thankful to Lisa that she had so much trust in me. And quite honestly, I, I think the trust was there because of the relationship with Craig, you know, like she knows mm -hmm what type of person works at Craig and what caliber of the legal work is, quite frankly. Like Craig has a great reputation. So I, I'm just really excited to have been given the opportunity and to build this role kind of from the ground up 
You know, I'm the first staff attorney that Beyond Toxics has ever had. And that's extremely exciting and daunting and <laughs> stressful and amazing. Like it's it's a whole bunch of things. And like Repka said, you know, we're both kind of building our positions in our organizations. And yeah, it's just a day-to-day exercise and what's new? What are we gonna tackle today? So it's great. Aw, thank you both for sharing that. I love that, Taryn. I'm really happy that you are working with us. I think it's exciting. For a while, Lisa was wanting to have a staff attorney. Um, You fit well with the team, and it's just awesome working with you. So thank you very much for for working with us, because I think it's awesome. And Repka, of course, thank you for all that you do with us as well. And now I have an idea of what it is that you do. Environmental justice is a pretty new term. I want to talk a little bit about environmental justice. Have you, either of you, ran into somebody in the law field say something like, oh, well, there are a bunch of cracks, environmental justice lawyers. What is that? Have you guys experienced anything like that? Well, I think one, the fact that it's really just Taryn and I that are the main environmental justice attorneys in like Oregon, I feel like no one's directly really? called us out. Yeah, yeah, it's just us. Oh but, my God. but um so not yet, but hopefully never. Hopefully never, but you know, we got a good group of people around us. I'm sure we'll be okay. Yeah. I'm so excited to know that. I had no yeah. idea that you both were the only two. Yeah, yeah. And for the you know few months that Taryn and I overlapped at Craig, it was just me. So mm-hmm. I was like, I'm just so Oh happy. my gosh, you guys are celebrities. Oh my god, we're trying. Celebrities. <laughs> no, but I, I think it's so interesting, Audrey, because I will say outright, like I don't think there have been people have who have been like, ooh, environmental justice, but I definitely think there's a lot of people that are like, Well, I can't do that. You know, there's a lot of traditionally focused environmental Folks, I won't limit it to just lawyers because it's partially the entire environmental movement at some points. I think it's so new in the legal sphere. I think people are trying to figure out what it is. Um, And I do think that there is sometimes a sense of like, oh, other people are doing that work and it's great, but I'm not, I can't do that. I don't have that skill set. So yeah, I just, I wouldn't say negative, but I definitely think there's a lot of room to grow in terms of people's understanding of what environmental justice actually means in practice. Yeah, I, th- I think Taryn's being polite about it because I feel like <laughs> in <laughs> tell it. <laughs> I feel like I feel like you know when we were in law school, you know, throughout you know, Taryn and I were in the same year, mm-hmm. so our first two years of law school there was no environmental justice class that was like meaningfully put together and mm-hmm. like widely accessible. It was like a seminar class when we were there that no one really took, mm-hmm. and. Up until then, I feel like whenever there was kind of a little bit of pushback in my classes of asking about, like, how does this disproportionately affect this kind of community? Or how does it, you know, basically trying to sprinkle in principles of environmental justice in our regular coursework, there was kind of like, a oh, well, like, we're just focusing on the black letter law right now. Mm -hmm. And you know, that apprehension of wanting to meaningfully integrate EJ into the curriculum and you know, for benefit of the doubt, hopefully that's just like, you know, I don't have the tools quite yet Mm -hmm. to meaningfully teach EJ. Or maybe it was also just like, that's just not something that we need to be concerned about. I mean, there is that kind of narrative around environmental justice of people being like, why are we bringing race into environmental law? Mm -hmm. Like, that's a sentence that is people can easily say. And 
while I do have empathy for folks who've been working in the space for years and like the reasons why the Clean Water Act the way it is, is the way it is, the way we have the Clean Air Act and NEPA, like the National Environmental Protection Act, Endangered Species Act. I'm so grateful that these statutes are there. And for all the attorneys and people who have advocated to get these laws the way that they are. But I think there that there then ends up being a little bit of defensiveness when organizations or EJ based organizations are saying, yeah, but like we can do more and there's people actively being excluded by these same laws. Mm -hmm. So I think that is happening. But I think as the national narrative and international narrative around EJ starts to become a little bit more bolstered and has a little bit more teeth to it, then there can't really be that kind of disregard anymore. Mm -hmm. It's going to become its own meaningful big air quotes for folks listening in, a meaningful, you know, inclusion of EJ in the regular environmental law cool kid table. Yeah. I'm really excited to hear that you both, and being women, nothing against men, but being women and being the only two environmental justice lawyers in Oregon is pretty badass. So I feel very fortunate to be talking with both of you today. And I feel like we're having a good chat. So we mentioned environmental racism. That was a new term to me before I started working at Beyond Toxics. Now I know what it is and not only what it is, but that my family was victim to it um, because uh, the whole reason I'm doing this podcast is because my daughter was sick and my friend's son was sick and J.H. Baxter and their pollution and, and all these things. I didn't know what environmental racism was. And now I do. And it makes me angry to see folks being subject to that. So in in your own words, what is environmental racism? Environmental racism, in my own words, is it's it's the disproportionate impact on marginalized communities, whether that's enforcement, whether that's policy to even prevent something from happening, or whether it's cleanup, it's a disproportionate impact that these laws have or don't have on minority communities. So that can look like inequitable siting of like a you know toxic waste facility being in a primarily black neighborhood that can look like something not being written in like a bilingual with having um what's it called like public policies or what like public notices public notices mm-hmm. being accessible to someone who doesn't necessarily speak english mm-hmm. it's just that historical and current exclusion from our environmental laws and processes that. that are disproportionately affecting marginalized communities mm-hmm. Do you feel this sort of the same like that, Tara? Oh, yeah. I, mean, I know you don't like yeah. environmental yeah. racism either, but I asked her her opinion, so I want to ask you as well. No, I really I, that, was, that was spot on. I have, I really don't have anything to add. That was very well said, Repka. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, you know, we got a little background about both of you, and I think that that's important so that we know there's a lot of people that would listen to this and be like, well, what? why do we care what lawyers are saying? But we need environmental justice lawyers because there are places like West Eugene that are subject to environmental racism. And not only West Eugene has somebody, someplace that I was experienced that. I grew up in Texas mm-hmm. and there were several different neighborhoods that some of them were up on the hill and some were down the hill. And down the hill is where the black people lived. Down the hill is where all the black people were. And there was this huge slaughterhouse mm-hmm. right in the center of 
the neighborhood and none of us thought it was weird you know we were just oh god it really smells today and then we just saw it it was just this big thing and we saw it there we didn't know what it was or what they did in there or what it could be doing to our health at all I still didn't know that I, I went down to Texas to visit and went down the hill where my family lives and the place was shut down working the way that I do now and looking at these facilities and seeing them I have questions like why did they shut down so I try to google because I'm always on the google I try to google and see when it shut down why it shut down I was asking Lisa because I saw I was in a meeting with someone and I saw slaughterhouse on one of the things and I was like well what is the slaughterhouse doing like what could that be doing and then I learned that it's some of the waste and some of the things that they use can just go straight into the water and it makes me wonder like how long that place had been there and how many people had gotten sick from some of the things that were going on there and didn't even know it and then it made me mad it made me be like okay well that thing should not have been down here in this neighborhood in the first place like who's gonna put a giant slaughter I mean it was like somebody had just picked it up and just placed it right in the center of the neighborhood mm -hmm. and like I said there's a lot of people that don't know like there's a lot of people in West Eugene they don't know what's going on with the with the pollution they know now a lot more and J.H. Baxter's closed now so I think some of the quote-unquote threat has been removed from them but there are many more facilities out in that area and some of the things that I know that Taryn is working on and I want to have her share a little bit of that with me about some of the things she's been working on with with Beyond Toxics and, and community because you're doing the community work now you're you're in it you're doing what what you wanted to be doing and I think it's great and I don't know if the two of you are working together in any capacity but I'm going to talk about the public health overlay zone quite a bit because I was going to talk about it so you go <laughs> I, I want to I want to bring that in because I, I think that that is, is something that's huge and something that can really, really impact the BIPOC community. And for a reminder out there, everyone, BIPOC is Black, Indigenous, and people of color. I know that policies that you both are working on are things that can benefit those communities. So let's talk a little bit about the public health overlay zone, what that is, and why we want to do it because there is some environmental racism happening out there and it's going to continue to happen until we have laws and policies in place to take care of these folks. So what is a, what is a public health overlay zone? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the public health overlay zone is this innovative policy that Beyond Toxics has been working with, with community members, basically to try and see if there is a way to limit really harmful and toxic uses in the West Eugene area, potentially, potentially more. But we're really focused on the West Eugene area because that is such a heavily industrial corridor in the city of Eugene itself. And just to back up a little bit, so, and please feel free to chime in if I am just misstating what the law is, but I don't think I will be. Um, I just want a caveat of like, I think I know what I'm talking about. Um, you know but, what you're talking about. You know what you're talking about. But yeah, just to back up a little bit. So it's a land use policy, um, specifically kind of going into the zoning code a bit because overlay zones are these areas that are overlaid over existing portions and they can be used for 
a myriad of different things. There are several environmental overlay zones that, you know, set up buffers or setbacks for streams. And this policy that we're working on is taking that overlay concept and focusing it in on public health and public wellness. And so it's a really interesting land use policy that is in the works right now. I don't want to I don't want to speak too much about it because I'm pretty sure the policy is in flux right now. We had a recent work session with the city of Eugene, Mm -hmm. and I'm pretty sure there's going to have to be some things tweaked going forward. But ideally, it would limit kind of the worst of the worst polluters in the area, you know, to make sure that situations like J.H. Baxter never happen again from the outset to make sure that if a new facility comes in, they can't set up shop within that area. And also, I don't think I mentioned this, but it's hopefully going to be setting up buffers between these toxic polluters and residents. It's making sure that these people can't set up shop next to homes and parks and schools and just really making sure that healthy communities are embedded in Eugene City Code. Yeah, yeah, that's, you said it right on dot on the dot. I know what it is, but everybody else out there doesn't know what it is. So thank you for explaining it. Because these policies can be really high level. You know, there's a lot of in the public health overlay zone. There's a lot of stuff in there that I don't, I'm like, what? I just want to be here to talk about the people. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know everything. So I appreciate the work that you do with that because, you know, I am learning about these laws and, and, and policies and I am learning how hard they are to implement. So I know that that is one of the things that's daunting for you. So. I appreciate your hard work on that. It kind of parallels with something that has happened with Revka from what the article that I made, because there was that buffer zone in a place where you were because they were just spraying pesticides up on the kids. So there was a buffer zone put there. So there, there's another parallel. Do you want to explain and talk a little bit about how we were able to make that possible? Because we are really trying so hard to make sure that this is done because we don't want another J.H. Baxter. We don't want that. I don't want that. So how was it that you were able to get that? How did that happen? I I don't want to be a wet blanket. It's still Stop not it. even, we don't even have a meaningful buffer yet. Um, I, the last time I looked, uh, I think they managed to get half a mile. The original hope was one mile. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're at the one mile buffer yet, but that's without me Googling right now. <laughs> but the last time, but at the time I talked in that article, it, they only got a mile or a half a mile. So that was such a huge, heavy lift. But I think like, you know, I, the fact that we have, there is a buffer at this point is huge. And mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. something that, you know, while it is not like the one mile that they were originally advocating for, you know, that that half mile is still like, it's, it's still great. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it was a lot of organizing, a lot of testimony, a lot of going to Sacramento, a lot of, you know, and then I think what helped is that we got Gavin Newsom as a governor. Because by the time when I was in college, we had Jerry Brown, Governor Jerry Brown, who he was great. But like, I mean, he was like, OK, like it just wasn't a priority. Like environmental justice just wasn't a priority yet. So we got Gavin Newsom now who. Is has a, lo- a lot more of a sympathetic ear to things like that. So the organization is still ongoing. It's just a lot of heavy lifting. I mean, that was five, over five years ago for me. And at that, and I just came in 
in a little blip of the years of work that they were already doing. So, and that's, you know, that's kind of where environmental racism also kind of comes into play, right? It's like they're Mm -hmm. a lot of heavy industry and like, God forbid you even try to touch anything that regulates pesticides, Mm -hmm. you know, or like big industry, because then like they have so much money and Mm -hmm. resources to just like wait you out at the end of the day. Yeah. So, you know, and that's a way that environmental racism shows up. It's like they're relying on the fact that people don't know. They're relying Mm -hmm. on the fact that, like, you're working so much that you're like, who am I to go to Sacramento, like a four hour drive from Santa Cruz? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have kids to watch or my kids are sick or I'm sick or I have to work. I have to pay rent in a, you know, in a state where, you know, a large reason, the reason why I'm in Oregon is because it's so expensive to live in the Bay Area. So it's so many compounding factors that, folks in power and industries in power rely on yeah just just to play the long game yeah it's frustrating because it's Mm -hmm. it's lives it's people's lives and everybody you know cavalier is one of my favorite words and and everybody's so cavalier about it like there's no reason that there shouldn't be a buffer zone around people there's no reason and for this to have something that happened five years ago and still isn't enacted is ludicrous to me at least mm-hmm. at least there's that half mile at least there's that because mm-hmm. it's not it's not fair that people that aren't able to afford to live in other places have to just deal with it and then there's this whole circle of people who are dedicated and spend their time and take their time and come to meetings and give testimony and do all these things and then when we have folks not caring about policies like this. Not that they don't care. I don't want to say that. Not rushing, not seeing the urgency of getting this in place is really, really frustrating. And it can be, it can be defeating. And so it's really not fair. You know, they, we have the certain people that come and they, they really want to participate, but then you have folks that are like, you know, and I was probably one of these people that were like, well, somebody else is going to these meetings. Somebody else in the, what am I going to do? What's, what, what can little old me do? Why would I go to these meetings? So we have that. And again, environmental racism is tacking onto that. They're like, okay, well, these people aren't going to do that. So right now there is not a policy in place in Eugene to protect these folks. And that's ludicrous to me. I mean, there's a whole other part of that, that we want to go with the public health overlay zone is risk bonds. Mm -hmm. Risk bonds to me are a no brainer. Like Mm -hmm. why I have to have home renters insurance or homeowners insurance. I have to have car insurance. I have Mm -hmm. to have this insurance and these big industries are not being required to do that. So they can just pollute, scoot, scoot and pollute. They can just head out because there's no uh, accountability. So, you know, I know that we're we're talking about public health overlay zone right now, but we are still going to be pushing for that, and we're still going to be pushing for risk bonds that hasn't even opened up yet mm-hmm. for a work session. Do you, does one of you want to tell me what a risk bond is? Because I'm just I'm talking about it. I know what I'm talking about, but there's folks out there that are like, what? What's a risk bond? In very broad terms, it's a way to enforce liability for mm-hmm. these huge companies to ensure that like if a disaster happens on their watch because like an explosion of an industry or something like that, 
it's money that they kind of have to put forward in order to front that. It's a little bit different from liability insurance. I know there's a line to toe. Um, and quite honestly, I don't know what that line is yet. I need to do more research. It's kind of an upcoming project. But from my broad understanding, it's just a way to keep those people on the hook and on the line for um, any harms that they cause mm-hmm. from their operations. Yeah, it isn't it ludicrous that there's nothing? There's nothing in place. No, like, it's insane. And I think it's such a case-by-case basis because I do know some folks have to have a working insurance, but I, I agree that there needs to be something a bit more standardized across the board um, to really hold them accountable for what they're doing to communities, the decades of cleanup that needs to be done. Their insurance doesn't cover that. It's It's definitely very centered on them so there's so much to do (laughs) it just it it just it makes me mad but it just makes me mad because I feel like the people that are supposed to protect us and I'm speaking as a community member out in West Eugene the people that are supposed to protect us are afraid to protect us it feels like they're afraid to tiptoe into what if instead Mm -hmm. of thinking about oh that could be my instead of the the main what if is what if that was my child? That's not the what if that they're they're going for. What if that, that was my kitty cat? What if that was my, you know, out in a rural area? What if that was my horses? You know, like they're not thinking about it in that way. And I'm not saying all of them. I don't I don't want to I'm not bad mouthing anyone in particular. This is not pointed at anyone. It's just frustrating. And being the community organizer out in West Eugene, I hear the anxiety and I hear the fear. And I hear the anger and I share in that with them. So, yeah, it's it's a lot to unpack. It really is. And so is there something in particular right now that you're working on, Rebecca, that we can share with folks a little bit? You know, something that I'm really excited about, like what my day to day job is, is, you know, when I go to these not like my clients are nonprofit organizations. So I'm working with organizations like Verde, Opal Environmental Justice, um, Beyond Toxics, obviously, and really whoever kind of just, you know, pops into my inbox and is like, hey, like, here's this thing, or me doing my own due diligence of trying to see what's already going on in Oregon and seeing how I can help. So also working with ELSO, Experience Life Outdoors Incorporated, it's like a um, science education like a stem education organization that primarily is dedicated to bipoc youth so you know overarching of like what i'm doing for folks is you know it's a lot of like policy research it's a lot of and then advice from whatever i find in that research of being like oh here's what might be a heavy lift here's you know here's an avenue of seeing what's going on and there's also you know educational support for example i just did research on the drink drinking water state revolving fund and one of my clients was like, what is this? Can we tap into it? What does it mean? How, what does this mean for disadvantaged communities? So it'll just be providing accessible and digestible information of like often confusing and institutionally like barred legal jargon and mm-hmm. administrative jargon. There's also organizations that I'm helping to like help incorporate EJ into their own like work policies, um, helping them you know, figure out how can we be more equitable in our work practices? How do we incorporate EJ into the things that we want to do? So it looks like that as well. And 
you know, before J.H. Baxter settled, it was going to be me going and supporting y'all at the um, contested case hearing and Mm -hmm. supplying that closing argument brief of being trying to kind of make sure that the community voices are heard. So it could be litigation. Um, Environmental law moves historically at a snail pace. So (laughs) I don't know the next time I'll go to (laughs) the next time I'll potentially go to court. But um, you know, my role is primarily policy based. So I, once I think folks start putting their legislative agendas on the calendar, then I can be more open on like what I'm working on. But yeah, it's a lot of that background support. And it's just mostly like, what can I use my legal, like my law degree to help you advance? It's just like just trying to be a conduit for effectuating change. So that's something that is really exciting about the environmental justice field as like a lawyer, too. It's like kind of chipping away at the monolith of what we were told that we have that we were told that we had to be in law school you know law school is they just break you down and then mold you back up into thinking the way a lawyer also air quotes thinks and but then that's exclusionary and that doesn't include everyone because up until recently the law didn't even include everyone so how can we be told to just do this cookie cutter job so Mm -hmm. I think that's what I also really like about environmental justice work too it's really dynamic it's just it's different day to day and it kind of keeps it interesting mm-hmm. you know when I when I talk to other colleagues that are not in environmental law that are you know maybe doing like tax or corporate I'm like oh my god like I'm so grateful that you're there but I'm also like <laughs> glad I'm not doing it imagine how do you do what yeah. you do <laughs> yeah oh my god so, yeah yeah well thank you for sharing that especially with the with the advice part because that's a question I was going to ask you all what advice as attorneys free advice because this is shouldn't free so what, what, what can you say to folks, what, like to, to open up the door for them to be able to, to do something about these things? It's a really good question. I mean, I, I would just say like, my main piece of advice is just keep relying on your communities. Those are the people that are there to work with you. And I mean, when I say communities, I also mean like lawyers like Rebka and I, like people that care about the community are working with you and just like, don't get discouraged by how slowly the ball moves sometimes. Mm -hmm. Don't get discouraged at city council meetings or work sessions not going your way or things having to get watered down in the process. Like it's really important to remember that the change that's going to happen, especially in the law, is going to be really incremental. And it's going to take those baby steps of just inching forward slowly in order to eventually like get the progress that we want to see and that these communities deserve. So yeah, I would just say like, keep, keep that in mind and like, change your definition of what success is like success mm-hmm. is the ball continuing to roll it may not roll as far as you want but i think any forward movement is really good and just like take care of yourself because this is really hard and you need to take that time to just nurture yourself and feel all your feelings about being frustrated thank you for saying that because it is frustrating and it is scary and working with beyond toxics almost 3 years now i can see how slow things move. And because I'm on the inside of that, it gives me a little bit more comfort. But there's folks that are not on the inside and don't see that there's things happening or know why they're going so slow. They're just like, what the hell? This is my life. I'm I'm tired of this. They're they're not, they don't know how slow it is. So that is really, really encouraging, not only to the listeners out there, but it's encouraging to me. I, I felt that. So thank you very much for saying it. 
I, if nobody else gets that, I got it. So thank you very much. And I think other people will, but I felt like you were talking to me. So and Rebecca, you kind of already answered it, but let's, let's just see a little bit, a little bit about what you would say. Yeah. That was beautifully said you too. I think, you know, all that I would add on to that is, you know, taking solace in that there is forward momentum as frustrating and incredibly unfair it is that these things move so slowly and it's disproportionately affecting the people that are most affected by it the most like that's just so messed up and I just want to lay that out there I think it's just incredibly unfair but you know like this is the first time that like a president has really issued meaningful Mm -hmm. policy objectives with environmental justice this is the first time that like environmental justice is just extending past things like flint and the pipeline mm-hmm. while both are very very valid environmental justice uh movements it shouldn't be a catastrophe before people care about it mm-hmm. it should just be a general practice so yeah. the fact that it's becoming like the fact that you know myself and taryn even have these roles is huge the fact that there are organizations like beyond toxics that are still moving is huge as industries grow and as climate change worsens, like more and more people that were not affected five or six years ago are being affected now, yeah. whether for, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. So there's only going to be forward moving momentum. And I think that's really exciting. I just wish it was fast forwarded. But, you know, the way that things move in this country, it's going to be slow. Mm-hmm. But I do find excitement in that. For example, you know, in our, um, at our law school, in our third year of law school, we had um, Professor Lisa Benjamin, who started teaching environmental justice. She's like this incredible professor. And her first year that she taught it, there was 30 people in our class. By the time I was a year out, there was 50. And now there's more, like there's more and more and more students. And it's not like a prerequisite to graduate or anything. Mm -hmm. These are people taking it because they care about it. And, you know, Every couple of weeks, I get a new email from a student being like, hey, I see your work. It's really cool. Can I learn more? I want to do what you do. Mm-hmm. So there's more and more people who are wanting to work in the field. And the more that like folks already working in it kind of like hold the line so that people can catch up, it's going to happen. So yeah. I think that's what makes me excited. You know, I mean, I was just talking to Professor Benjamin a couple of weeks ago and she was like, yeah, I like had she had like what nearly 60 people this year wow that's amazing it's so many people and it's great more and more people are getting compared to when Taryn and I were starting at Lewis and Clark and it was like a 10 person seminar (laughs) you know it's it's that's huge so I have the optimism not only in the community-based activism aspect of it but and the you know national and state policy but I think within the legal community too like the legal community is finally catching up Mm -hmm. and that's really really exciting yeah I love it I love it. I, I thank you both for those great answers. We what we want is we want environmental justice to not be a bad word. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like a bad word when we're going around and we're doing um, canvassing. We never say I work for an environmental justice organization because that puts like a what are you talking about? What do you mean? Like it makes it a bad word, and it needs mm-hmm. to not be a bad word anymore. No. It needs to be a word that everybody knows and everybody uses. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate having dynamites like you working for us like that and that can give me comfort I appreciate it I appreciate what you do and the world appreciates what you do so I'm happy that you guys are in the roles that you were in because we needed you so thank you thank you you. and we're Um, happy that that you are just such an amazing you know activist as well it's like it's another 
it's another baton pass. It's all the same batons being passed around at the same time. <laughs> Isn't like it great? There without the other. Yes. Yeah. Lawyers cannot solve everything. <laughs> yeah. Like well, I'll take that best. baton any day. I'll take yes. it. Yeah. We rely Likewise. on people like you, Archery. So thank Aww, you. Aw, thanks. Thanks. So um, we're going to close out here. I'm going to ask you guys a couple questions and get in your hearts a little bit. In those articles, those Google, my Google searches, I found a couple quotes from both of you. I'm going to ask you a little bit about those. Taryn, you had said in one of these articles, what can I do to make climate change? And you might have said this already, but tell me about that statement. And do you feel like you're making changes? Because I know you're making changes. <laughs> but do you feel like you're close to that goal? I think so. I mean, I don't, I'm not even sure like what achieving that goal would really look like. But I mean, I would say I'm getting there just because I have this job and I'm working in this field environmental justice is a budding legal issue it has not been it's been around for a very long time but since like we've talked about it's coming into that light we're making the laws now we are going to in this era kind of figure out what teeth environmental laws and environmental statutes can have that can include frontline communities and communities that have been historically marginalized and i mean i think i think i am making those small changes in my job every day, like moving that ball forward. I, I would say, yeah, I think, but yeah, I don't know what the end goal would look like, but I'm just really enjoying the process. And I think any success is just like making the world better than I found it. As, as like cheesy as that, as that feels, I, I like being a small piece in the puzzle of, of change. Like it's going to take all of us. And I'm just happy that I get to do this work with such amazing people. You're not a small piece. You're a big, big piece. Thank and fifth, and fifth grade, a fifth grade Taryn is really, really happy right now. Oh, she's so, I'm, so glad she's not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad she's not a doctor too, because then I wouldn't know her. So I'm glad that I got to meet her today as well. And so Repka, another thing that I read about, and you did talk about this a little bit. Um, you had asked why are the people that grow the food that we eat having the brunt of these ramifications. Mm -hmm. And that's when they said to you, well, we need, we need more attorneys. Mm -hmm. We need, we need people like you. So here you are, you're doing that. And would you say that you're walking in your purpose? Because a lot of people, and I say this a lot because I am one of those people that gets to live and walk in my purpose. I know what my purpose is. My purpose is to help BIPOC communities know that they have rights, to help mm -hmm. families like my own know that they're not alone and that there mm -hmm. are people that care and that it might mm -hmm. not happen as fast as you want, but it will happen. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like you're walking in your purpose? Do you feel like you're, you're, you're meeting that mark? Oh my God, Archery, that's such a, <laughs> that's such a lovely question. Um, yeah, I do. I, you know, as frustrated as I get sometimes with, you know, whatever my day-to-day -day looks like or how underpaid I feel like everyone in this space is, or just like being like, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm really like, oh my God, like this is a need that is being filled. And I'm so glad that it's, I'm one of those people that's filling that need. And I, 
love at the, the at the end of the day I'm like okay I meaningfully contributed to some change today and I think that's a real blessing that a lot of people strive for in their day-to-day of like what am I doing especially in a time where like everything feels like it's going sideways mm-hmm. N- nothing like you know I just you know, I deleted all the news apps off of my phone because I'm like, what do I need to learn about today? I don't need to learn about any of these little day-to-day things. And right. I think just at the end of the day, knowing that like in my little corner with my little Lego house, I'm meaningfully building and I'm, you know, doing my job and I feel like I'm doing it well and I want to continue doing that job well. And I do feel like I'm walking in my purpose. And I think it's, that's an amazing way to put it and I'm just so grateful to be working with such incredible folks because I think the people that you work with are like 90% of the reason why this job feels meaningful like I love going to meetings with folks who are just like fired up and trying to figure out how to fix things and you know I've always been a fixer since I was a kid and I feel like this is the ultimate like fixer like I'm so excited (laughs) to just like I'm like just (laughs) just give it so I can help fix it and and it's an incredible feeling and you know, when I'm old and gray on my porch, maybe if I own a home one day, I will like to be like, you know what, like I did that. And I helped people. And I feel like these are the building blocks to that now. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. amazing. So mm-hmm. sixth grade Redwoods Rebka is just clicking her heels and so happy right now. Yeah, I think she would be pretty surprised that I am not in the dirt every day. <laughs> I think she'd be surprised she's in an office every day. But I think she would be generally happy. And I think she would be like, yeah, like you did that. Aww. You two are amazing. I had a great time talking with you today. (laughs) This was so fun and easy. The conversation was really easy. Um, I appreciate it so much. You two are amazing and we need more lawyers like you. They were right at your internship. We do. We need, we need you. And you guys are blazing saddles for that. And that's that's very admirable. So thank you for my community and from myself and from the world because you both are walking and living in your purpose. And I'm proud of fifth grade, sixth grade, 16-year-old me. All of us are doing great. Thank you. So I appreciate you very much. Um, again, I'm Arjuri, and I appreciate you listening to Why We Do the Work. This was a great conversation with two dynamite ladies. And I hope that you come back and join us next time on Why We Do the Work. Mm